Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 4 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 4, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth of York. Chapter 2, Part 2 For seven long years, England was convulsed by the pretensions of Perkin Warbeck. In the summer of 1495, the young king of Scotland, James IV, or rather his regency, committed a great outrage against the English monarch by receiving the imposture and bestowing on him the hand of the beautiful Lady Catherine Gordon, who was not only a princess of the royal blood of Scotland, but, by descent from Joanna Beaufort, was one of the nearest relatives Henry the Seventh and his mother had. Perkin invaded the English border, and Henry levied an army to give him battle, saying, he hoped now he should see the gentleman of whom he had heard so much. Before the king departed, Queen Elizabeth ornamented his bassinet with her own hands with jewels. He paid, however, the expenses of her outlay, which fact rather diminishes the romance of the queen's employment. The greatest danger existed during the succeeding years, that the queen and her children would finally be displaced by the impostor, for as soon as the insurrections in his favor were subdued in one quarter, they broke out in an opposite direction. Perkin appeared as if by magic in Ireland, and then invaded the Cornish coast. His western partisans brought the war close to the metropolis. A sharp action was fought at Deptford Bridge and Blackheath. Henry the Seventh was nearly in despair of success, and seems to have been in a thorough fright, till the Battle of Blackheath was decided in his favor, June 1497. Afterwards, Perkin and his bride were severally taken prisoners. Lady Catherine Gordon was called the White Rose from her delicate beauty and the pretensions of her husband to the rights of the House of York. She loved him, and she had followed him in all his adventures since her marriage, till he left her for security in the strong fortress of St. Michael's Mount, which was captured by the Royalists, and Lady Catherine brought prisoner to the king, who was then at Winchester Palace. When she entered his presence, she blushed excessively, and then burst into a passion of tears. King Henry remembered the near kindred of the distressed beauty to himself. He spoke kindly to her, and presented her to his queen, who took her into her service, where she remained till her second marriage with Sir Matthew Cradock. The compassion showed by Henry to the disconsolate White Rose raised some reports that he was captivated by her beauty, but he seems to have anticipated such gossip by resigning her to the care of his queen. There was no peace for England till after the execution of the adventurous boy who took upon himself the character of the queen's brother. For upwards of two years, Henry the Seventh spared the life of Perkin, 
but inspired with a spirit of restless daring which showed as if he came one way of the great plantagenets this youth nearly got possession of the tower and implicated the unfortunate earl of warwick his fellow captive in his schemes it is reasonably supposed that perkin was a natural son of edward the fourth for his age agrees with that monarch's residence in holland fourteen seventy why henry the seventh spared his life so long is an historical mystery unless he really was a merciful man willing to abstain from blood if his turbulent people would have permitted him that abstinence could no longer continue perkin after undergoing many degradations in the vain hope of dispelling his delusion of royalty was hanged at tyburn november sixteenth and the more unjustifiable execution of the earl of warwick followed this last prince of the name of plantagenet was beheaded on tower hill november twenty eighth fourteen ninety nine the troubles and commotions of civil war entirely ceased with the existence of this unfortunate young man a plague so venomous broke out in england after this event that henry the seventh fearing lest the queen should be among its victims took her out of the country in may and the royal family resided at calais for more than a month some say that the queen entertained the archduke philip of austria most royally while she remained at calais it is however certain that a marriage between the queen's beautiful little daughter mary and charles son of the archduke philip afterwards the great emperor charles v was agreed on at this time and the marriage treaty between arthur prince of wales and the youngest daughter of spain catherine of aragon was concluded the parents of that princess king ferdinand of aragon and queen isabella of castile having previously demurred regarding its completion as long as the unfortunate earl of warwick lived the wedlock of arthur and catherine finally took place in the autumn of fifteen o one it filled elizabeth's court with joyous festivity and she herself took an active part in the scene the following january the queen presided at the betrothment of her eldest daughter margaret with james the fourth of scotland performed at st paul's cathedral lady catherine the widow of perkin warbeck was in attendance on the queen at these fiancelles after the religious ceremonial the queen took her daughter by the hand and led her to a grand banquet prepared at the bishop of london's palace close by where they both dined at one mess covered the young queen of scotland remained at the english court to finish her education much has been said regarding the coldness and unkindness of henry the seventh to his gentle partner but if he indulged in any public jealousy of her superior title to the crown of england and permitted her not to govern the kingdom whose title she secured to him at least he gave her no rival in her court or home the nearer the private life of this pair is examined the more does it seem replete with proofs of greater domestic happiness than usually falls to the lot of royal personages henry and elizabeth were seldom apart and many little traits may be quoted which evince unity of purpose when they were together among others there is a pleasing union of their names in a valuable missal once belonging to a lady of the queen for this line is written in the hand of king henry madam i pray you remember me your loving maester henry r directly underneath is added in the queen's hand madam i pray you forget me not pray to god in order that i may have part of your prayers elizabeth the queen 
the conjugal affection between the king and queen was now to be tried by an affliction they had little anticipated this was the death of their promising son arthur prince of wales who died on the second of april within five months of his marriage henry and elizabeth were at greenwich palace when the news arrived of their heavy loss the king's confessor a friar observant was deputed by the privy council to break the sad news to him somewhat before his usual time the confessor knocked at the king's chamber door and when admitted he requested all present to quit the room and approached saying in latin if we receive good from the hand of god shall we not patiently sustain the ill he sends us he then showed his grace that his dearest son was departed to god when the king understood these sorrowful heavy tidings he sent for the queen saying that he and his wife would take their painful sorrow together after she was come and saw the king her lord in that natural and painful sorrow as i have heard say she with full great and constant comfortable words besought him that he would after god consider the weal of his own noble person of his realm and of her and added the queen remember that my lady your mother had never no more children but you only yet god by his grace has ever preserved you and brought you where you are now over and above god has left you yet a fair prince and two fair princesses and god is still where he was and we are both young enough as your grace's wisdom is renowned all over christendom you must now give proof of it by the manner of taking this misfortune then the king thanked her for her good comfort but when the queen returned to her own chamber the natural remembrance of her great loss smote so sorrowfully on her maternal heart that her people were forced to send for the king to comfort her then his grace in great haste came and with true gentle and faithful love soothed her trouble telling her what wise counsel she had given him before and that if she would thank god for her dead son he would do so likewise this scene gives no great reason for the constant assertion that elizabeth was the victim of conjugal infelicity or that she was treated with coldness and dislike by her husband but it is in this reign that faction first employed domestic slander as a weapon against the sovereign on the throne and in this as in many other instances when search is made into the silent but irrefragable witnesses of contemporary journals household books and letters the direct contrary is often proven which has been reported by common rumor lord bacon hints that the king's reserve was on political matters because it extended to his mother who was indisputably an object of his tender affection his mother he reverenced much but listened to little his queen notwithstanding she presented him with divers children and a crown also could do nothing with him to her he was nothing uxorious but if not indulgent he was companionable and without personal jealousy it is most evident that henry was neither governed by his wife nor his mother but when a man governs himself well it is not often that his wedded partner endeavors to take upon herself that trouble henry was in fact a deeply reflective and philosophic character wholly free from those starts of irrational passions which above all other misdoings degrade a man in the eyes of the females of his family every action of this monarch seems the result of calm deliberation no decision was left to passion or accident 
for says lord bacon he constantly kept notes and memorials in his own hand especially touching persons as whom to employ whom to reward keeping as it were a journal of his thoughts there is to this day a merry tale that his monkey set on as it was thought by one of his chamber tore his principal notebook all to pieces when by chance he left it about whereat the court which liked not these pensive accounts was much tickled with the sport however pleased his courtiers and his monkey might be with the demolition of his royal journal it was a great historical loss and so must be ever considered the privy purse accounts of his queen brought to light by the inestimable labors of one of our greatest historical antiquarians contain many particulars of her life and manners although they journalize but the last year of her life she had musical tastes and gave comparatively large sums for her instruments which were of the piano or harpsichord species such was the clavichord a keyed instrument of small size the bass and treble were enclosed in two separate portable cases and when played upon with both hands were set side by side on a table before the performer for a pair of clavichords made or imported by a foreigner the queen gave four pounds all in crowns by the hand of hugh dennys she caused her eldest daughter to be instructed in music for there is an item of payment to giles the looter for strings for the young queen of scots lute the principal queen's bedchamber lady when her sisters the princesses of york were not in waiting was her kinswoman lady elizabeth stafford daughter to her aunt the duchess of buckingham this lady had a salary of thirty-three pounds six shillings eight pence the queen had seven maids of honor who were allowed six pounds thirteen shillings four pence each per annum dame jane guilford who was governess to the princesses received thirteen pounds six shillings eight pence per annum agnes dean the queen's laundress had an allowance of two pounds six shillings eight pence and alice massey the queen's midwife was paid for the exercise of her office ten pounds it has been observed that the queen devoted a large part of her income to the maintenance of her sisters but in the last year of her life her expenses were increased by the charges of her sister catherine's children after the execution of the hapless earl of warwick the sons of edward the fourth's sister and the duke of suffolk lord edmund de la pole and his brother richard supposing not unreasonably that their turns would come next fled to flanders lord william courtney husband to the princess catherine was accused of having aided and abetted these hapless brethren in their escape for which offence he was imprisoned and his property seized by the king the queen placed her destitute sister in close attendance on her own person and took charge of her little children sending them to be nursed at her palace at havering bower the little lady margaret courtney choked herself at havering on a fish bone and her brother lord edmund likewise died there the queen was at the cost of their funerals the eldest son lived to prove a splendid favorite of his royal kinsman henry the eighth and afterwards to fall a victim to his capricious malice some indications occur in the queen's privy purse expenses that her health was infirm during the summer of fifteen o two for she made offerings at woodstock and the shrines of other churches for her recovery from sickness in august she made a progress towards the border of wales 
Her accounts at this time show tender remembrances of her family. She clothed an old woman who had been Norice, nurse, to her lord prince, her brother, the unfortunate Edward V, and rewarded a man who had suffered hospitable attention to her uncle, Earl Rivers, in his distress at Pontefract, just before his execution. The queen's seventh confinement was expected in February, 1503. In the previous autumn, she declined the services of a French nurse, with whom she had conferred at Baynard's Castle, but she dismissed her with a gratuity of a mark, or six shillings eight pence. Another nurse, one Mistress Harcourt, was recommended to her by her niece, Lady Catherine Grey. She came and spoke to the Queen at Westminster, but was dismissed with the same sum. It was agreed that the Queen's accouchement was to take place in the royal apartments of the Tower of London, and all things were prepared there for her reception. If ladies at that era had given way to nervous depression, arising from association of ideas, the remembrance of the mysterious disappearance of her hapless brothers from that gloomy den of assassination was enough to have destroyed Elizabeth when sojourning at such an abiding place. It is certain she did not remain there longer than she could help, for, instead of taking her chamber and secluding herself in close retirement, according to custom, for a month or more previously to her accouchement, she spent that time in visits to her country palaces, and in excursions on the Thames, though the season was the depth of winter. The Christmas she passed at Richmond. Her gifts are recorded as if she had shared in the usual festivities. She presented her own minstrels, the chief of whom was called by the fanciful title of Marquis of Loridan, with twenty shillings, and to him and his associates, Jane and Markhorse, and Richard de Naus, she allowed each a salary of forty-six shillings eight pence. Elizabeth spent much of her time in listening to minstrels and dissars, or reciters, and these dissars sometimes took upon themselves the office of players, since she rewarded one of them, who had performed the part of a shepherd greatly to her satisfaction, with five shillings. She gave William Cornish the sum of thirteen shillings four pence, for setting the carol on Christmas Day, and presented forty shillings to the king's minstrels with the psalms. She gave a Spanish girl, perhaps belonging to the household of her daughter-in-law, Catherine of Aragon, who danced before her, a reward of four shillings four pence. The fools of the royal household were not forgotten. Elizabeth bestowed on Patch, her own fool, six shillings eight pence, and she gave gratuities to a fool belonging to her son Henry, a functionary who bore the appropriate name of Goose. A hundred shillings were put into her royal purse for her disport at cards this same Christmas. She likewise made some purchases of a small pair of enameled knives for her own use, and of Mistress Locke, the silk woman, she bought certain bonnets, caps, frontlets, and other stuff of her occupation, for her own wearing, giving her twenty pounds, in part payment, of a bill formerly delivered, which remittance the queen signed with her own hand. She paid Hayward the skinner, furrier, for furring a gown of crimson velvet, she had caused to be made for her young daughter, the queen of Scots, the cuffs of which were made of Pampelion, a sort of costly fur, then fashionable. Among these items is a curious one, showing Elizabeth's personal economy. Her tailor, Robert Addington, is paid sixteen pence for mending eight gowns of divers colors, 
for the queen's grace, at two pence apiece. She paid, however, the large sum of thirteen shillings four pence, to a man who brought her a popinjay, a parrot. Eight pence is charged for an L of linen cloth, for the queen's sampler, perhaps a pattern piece for her embroidery. Elizabeth kept embroiderers, who were chiefly French women, constantly at work on a great state bed, which was a perpetual expense to her, for silks and gold twist. She was, during the chief of the year 1502, in mourning for her eldest son Arthur, since all her new garments were black. These were a gown of black velvet, and a cloak of black damask. She was in debt, and, though she received occasional benefactions from her husband, she had at this time pawned some of her plate, but her embarrassment certainly did not arise from any personal extravagance. After Christmas, the queen was, with her ladies, rowed by her bargemen, Louis Walter, and his waterman, in a great boat from Richmond to Hampton Court. The day she went there is not named, but on the 13th of January, they all came back in the same manner to Richmond. She stayed at Hampton Court eight days, for the man who had the care of her barge charged for that time. It is worth noticing that Hampton Court was a favorite residence of Elizabeth of York, long before Cardinal Wolsey had possession of it, for in the spring of this year there is a notation that she was residing there, when she gave a poor woman a reward for bringing her a present of almond butter. The Queen said Grace and her ladies were finally rowed by Lewis Walter and his crew, from Richmond to the Tower, apparently very late in January. Each of the rowers was paid eight pence. No intimation is recorded of the ceremonial of her taking her chamber in the Tower. Her finances were low, for she borrowed ten pounds of one of the king's gentlemen ushers, in order to pay the officers of the mint their fees, which they craved as customary, on account of a royal residence at the Tower. William Trend received ten shillings, for making a chest and armoire, in the queen's council chamber at the Tower, for her books and papers. The queen's sister Catherine, Lady Courtney, was in attendance at the Tower at this time, for late in January the royal purse received a supply by the hands of that lady of forty-six shillings eight pence. The queen gave a poor woman, who brought a present of fine capons on the last day of January, a reward of three shillings four pence, and she gave her fool patch, who presented her with pomegranates, six shillings eight pence, being a mark. On Candlemas Day, February 2nd, the queen's accouchement took place. She brought into the world a living princess, who was named Catherine, after Lady Courtney. The fatal symptoms which threatened Elizabeth's life did not appear till a week afterwards, and must have been wholly unexpected, since the physician on whom the king depended for her restoration to health was absent at his dwelling-house beyond Gravesend. The king sent for this person, but it was in vain that Dr. Hallisworth traveled through the night, with guides and torches, to the royal patient in the tower. The fiat had gone forth, and the gentle, the pious, the lovely Elizabeth expired on her own birthday, February 11, 1503, the day she completed her 37th year. A manuscript describing her death says that her departing was as heavy and dolorous to the king as ever was seen or heard of, and that he took with him some of his servants, and privily departed to a solitary place, to pass his sorrow, and would that no man should resort to him. But he sent Sir Charles Somerset, 
and Sir Richard Guilford, to afford the best comfort they could to the Queen's servants, with good and kind words. When the news of Elizabeth's decease spread through the city, the utmost sorrow was manifested among all ranks of her subjects. The bells of St. Paul's tolled dismally, and were answered by those of every church and religious house, in the metropolis or its neighborhood. Meantime, the Queen was embalmed at the tower. For this purpose were allowed sixty ells of holland cloth, L broad, likewise gums, balms, spices, sweet wine, and wax. With which, being seared, the king's plumber closed her head in lead, with an epitaph likewise in lead, showing who and what she was. The whole was chested in boards, covered with black velvet, with a cross of white damask. The day after the queen's demise, Sunday, February 12th, her corpse was removed from the chamber where she died, to the chapel within the tower, under the steps of which then reposed, unknown to all, the bodies of the queen's two murdered brothers, Edward V and Richard, Duke of York. Far different was the order of their sister's royal obsequies, to that dark and silent hour, when the trembling old priest, who had belonged to this very chapel, raised the princely victims from their unconsecrated lair, and deposited them secretly within its hallowed verge. Could the ladies and officers of arms, who watched around the corpse of their royal mistress in St. Mary's Chapel, within the tower, during the long nights which preceded her funeral, have known how near to them was the mysterious resting place of her murdered brothers, many a glance of alarm would have fathomed the beautiful arches of this structure, and many a start of terror would have told, when the wintry wind from the Thames waved the black draperies which hung around. The scene of the queen's lying in state in the tower chapel must have been imposing. It was on this occasion rendered what the French call a chapel ardennae. The windows were railed about with burning lights, and a lighted hearse stood in the choir of the chapel. In this hearse was deposited the royal corpse, which was carried by persons of the highest rank, with a canopy borne over it by four knights, followed by Lady Elizabeth Stafford and all the maids of honor, and the queen's household two by two, dressed in their plainest gowns, or, according to another journal, in the saddest and simplest attire they had, with threatened handkerchiefs hanging down and tied under their chins. The Princess Catherine, led by her brother-in-law, the Earl of Surrey, then entered the chapel and took her place at the head of the corpse. A true mourner she was, for she had lost her best friend, and only protectress. When mass was done and offerings made, the princess retired. During the watch of the night, an officer at arms said, in a loud voice, a paternoster for the soul of the queen at every curie eleison, and at oremos before the collect. On the twelfth day after the queen's death, mass was said in the chapel early in the morning. Then the corpse was put in a carriage covered with black velvet, with a cross of white cloth of gold, very well fringed. An image exactly representing the queen was placed on a chair above, in her rich robes of state, her very rich crown on her head, her hair about her shoulders, her scepter in her right hand, her fingers well garnished with rings and precious stones, and on every end of the chair sat a gentlewoman usher, kneeling on the coffin, which was in this manner drawn by six horses, trapped with black velvet from the tower to Westminster. On the four horses rode two chariot men, and on the four others, four henchmen in black gowns. On the horses were lozenges, with the queen's escutcheons. 
By every horse walked a person in a mourning hood. At each corner of the chair was a banner of Our Lady, of the Assumption, of the Salutation, and of the Nativity, to show the queen died in childbed. Next, eight palfreys, saddled with black velvet, bearing eight ladies of honor, who rode singly after the corpse, in their slops and mantles. Every horse led by a man on foot, bareheaded, but in mourning gown, followed by many lords. The Lord Mayor and citizens, all in mourning, brought up the rear, and at every door in the city a person stood bearing a torch. In Fenchurch and Cheapside were stationed groups of thirty-seven virgins, the number corresponding with the Queen's age, all dressed in white, wearing chaplets of white and green, and bearing lighted tapers. From Mark Lane to Temple Bar alone were five thousand torches, besides lights burning before all the parish churches while processions of religious persons singing anthems and bearing crosses met the royal corpse from every fraternity in the city the earl of derby the queen's old friend led a procession of nobles who met the funeral at temple bar the abbots of westminster and bermondsey in black copes and bearing censers met and censed the corpse and then preceded it to the churchyard at st margaret westminster here the body was removed from the car and carried into the abbey. It was placed on a grand hearse streaming with banners and banneralls, and covered with a cloth of majesty, the valance fringed and wrought with the queen's motto, humble and reverent, and garnished with her arms. All the ladies and lords in attendance retired to the queen's great chamber in Westminster Palace to supper. In the night, ladies, squires, and heralds watched the body in the abbey. The next morning the remains of Elizabeth were committed to the grave. Her sister Catherine, her sorrowful survivor, attended as chief mourner. The queen's ladies offered thirty-seven palls, first kissing them and then laying them on the body. Four of these palls were presented by her sisters, who were all present as mourners. A funeral sermon was preached by Fitzjames, Bishop of Rochester, from the text in Job. Miserermini mei, Miserermini mei, saltum nos amici mei, quius manus domini tetiget mei. These words, he said, he spake in the name of England, on account of the great loss the country had sustained, of their virtuous queen, her noble son, the Prince Arthur, and the Archbishop of Canterbury. The palls were then removed from the coffin, the queen's effigy placed on St. Edward's shrine, and the ladies quitted the abbey. The prelates, with the king's chaplains, approached the hearse, and the grave was hallowed by the Bishop of London. After the usual rites, the body was placed in the grave. Astrologers had been consulted that year on the queen's behalf, and had predicted that all sorts of good fortune would befall her in 1503. Sir Thomas More wrote an elegy for the queen, in which, with his usual sagacity, he alludes at the same time to this circumstance, and to the folly and vanity of such divinations. Yet was I lately promised otherwise, this year to live in weal and in delight. Lo, to what cometh all thy blandishing promise, O false astrology and divin trice, of God's secrets vaunting thyself so wise. How true for this year is thy prophecy, the year yet lasteth, and lo, here I lie. Adieu, mine own dear spouse, my worthy lord, the faithful love that did us both combine, in marriage and peaceable accord, into your hands here do I clean resign, to be bestowed on your children and mine, 
erst were ye father now must ye supply the mother's part also for here i lie where are our castles now where are our towers goodly richmond soon art thou gone from me at westminster that costly work of yours mine own dear lord now shall i never see almighty god vouchsafe to grant that ye for you and children well may edify my palace builded is for lo now here i lie farewell my daughter lady margaret god wot full oft it grieved half my mind that ye should go where we might seldom meet now i am gone and have left you behind o mortal folk but we be very blind what we least fear full aught is most nigh for you depart i first for lo now here i lie farewell madame my lord's worthy mother comfort your son and be of good cheer take all at worth for it will be no other farewell my daughter catherine late the pair upon prince arthur late my child so dear it booteth not for me to wail and cry pray for my soul for lo now here i lie adieu lord henry loving son adieu our lord increase your honour and estate adieu my daughter mary bride of hugh god make you virtuous wise and fortunate adieu sweetheart my little daughter kate thou shalt sweet babe such is thy destiny thy mother never know for lo now here i lie lady cicely lady anne and lady catherine farewell my well-beloved sisters three o lady bridget other sister mine lo here the end of worldly vanity now are you well who earthly folly flee and heavenly things do praise and magnify farewell and pray for me for lo now here i lie adieu my lords adieu my ladies all adieu my faithful servants every one adieu my commons whom i never shall see in this world wherefore to thee alone immortal god verily three in one i me commend thy infinite mercy show to thy servant for now here i lie henry the seventh survived his consort seven years his character deteriorated after her loss the active beneficence and the ever-liberal hand of the royal elizabeth had probably formed a counteracting influence to the avaricious propensities of henry the seventh since it was after her death he became notorious for his rapacity and miserly habits of hoarding money a short time after her death the king lost his two virtuous and fearless privy councillors sir reginald bray and the good bishop norton who did not scruple to reprove him if he felt inclined to commit any act of injustice henry the seventh frequently entered into negotiations for a second marriage and he appears to have been remarkably particular in the personal qualifications of a consort it is not very easy to find one who could bear comparison with the beautiful heiress of the plantagenets henry the seventh died in the spring of fifteen o nine like his ancestors worn down with premature old age and was laid by the side of his queen in the magnificent chapel at westminster abbey which bears his name the portraits of henry the seventh are well known they have a singularly wasted and woeful physiognomy which excites surprise when compared with the extreme praises his contemporaries bestowed on his beauty the portraits were however chiefly taken from the cast of his face made after his death for the statue seen on his monument therefore the sad expression is easily explained in the chapter house at westminster is a splendid manuscript 
containing the plan and description of his well-known chapel in the abbey. Henry the Seventh is depicted in miniature, perhaps too minutely for accurate resemblance. He is there fair in complexion, with yellow waving hair, different to all other representations. The monument of Henry and Elizabeth, which occupies the center of his noble chapel, was designed by Torre Giano, who likewise cast the effigies of the royal pair reclining thereon. Elizabeth's statue is exquisitely designed, but its merits can scarcely be appreciated by those who are not employed to have the bronze gates of the stately sepulchre unclosed, to gaze upon the divine composure of the royal matron's beauty, serene in death. The statue strikingly resembles the portraits of the queen, many of which remain. The sweet expression of the mouth and the harmony of the features agree well with the soft repose that pervades the whole figure. The proportions are tall. The figure is about five feet six in length, yet is considerably less than the stature of the king. On a small white marble tablet, let into the bronze frise, on the queen's left hand, is the following inscription, the Italian having very oddly misspelled the queen's name. Hic yacet Regina Helisabet, Edward Quatuor, Quandum Regis Filia, Edward Quinque, Regia Nomiati Soror, Henrice Septem, Olim Regis Cunyux, Atque Henrice Octo, Mater Inclita, Obit Autem Suum Diem, Turi Londiniarum, Dei Febri Duo, Anno Domini 1502-1503, Triginta Septem Anorum, Etet Functa. Here rests Queen Elizabeth, daughter of Edward IV, sometime monarch of this realm, sister of Edward V, who bore the title of king, wedded to King Henry VII, the illustrious mother of Henry VIII, who closed her life in the palace of the Tower of London on February 2nd, 1502, 1503, having completed her 37th year. Elizabeth of York is one of the most beautiful of our queens, for in her person was united delicacy of features and complexion, with elegance and majesty of stature. Her portraits are numerous, and extremely like her monumental statue. Her usual costume was a veil, or scarf, richly bordered with gems, put on with a hood, hanging down on each side of the face, as low as her breast, her hair banded on the forehead. Several contemporaries quoted in the course of this narrative describe her as fair in complexion, with hair of pale gold like her mother, the beautiful Elizabeth Woodville. The heavenly serenity of expression in all her portraits is still more remarkable than her beauty, and leads to the conclusion that, when her subjects universally call her the good Queen Elizabeth, they spoke but the truth. End of section 4 Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.